Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, you want to spread the word of the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I can't tell you how much that really helps spread the word and the algorithms and all that uh, and gets the word out about the podcast and speaking of getting the word out please 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 don't forget to follow us on social media on facebook at snapshots in hockey history and on twitter at snapshots in well i apologize there was no show last week but i really needed a little bit of a break every six weeks or so i kind of get a little tired and i uh, gotta recharge my batteries so given that it was veterans day here in the u.s and up north as well Remembrance Day, uh, I took some time off and was able to do a little bit of research, get a couple of interviews scheduled, and also put this little gem together we have with Jim Fox. But before we get to the interview with Jim Fox, oh my God, a ton to catch up on. Let's start with last week. First of all, I did not post anything on Facebook or on Twitter saying there wasn't going to be a show. I got tied up on Monday at work. And next thing you know, I had tons of messages in my email, on Twitter, etc. Hey, Brett, what's going on? When's the next show going to be? And I was really, really flattered by that. When I started doing this, I did this because I just wanted to kind of get the inside scoop on hockey and find out what was really going on behind the scenes for my favorite era of hockey, which was the 80s and 90s. And now that people are reaching out and have gotten accustomed to listening to the podcast every week and when they don't get it, they reach out. That's really flattering to me. So thank you for that. Thank you to everybody for all the help you've put into this. Uh, One person reached out and kind of asked what the future of the podcast was. They said, Brett, is this something you're going to continue to do? And and the answer is definitely yes. I just needed a little bit of a break. I work a full-time job. I just got married about a year and a half ago. Uh, I also referee still a little bit part-time, still work for the Capitals a little bit part-time. And I'm also doing this podcast. So after about six or seven episodes, I just try to give myself a little of a break and take a week off. Um, One thing that the person did ask is he said, Brett, is there anything we can do to help? Because I know this is only you and and this is only me. I mean, I do the research. I book the interviews. I record. I edit. That's why the editing is terrible, because I have no idea what I'm doing with Adobe Edition. One thing you guys can do is just continue to spread the word, tweet it out there, share it on Facebook, tell friends that like hockey. That's really, really helped grow the podcast. And as the numbers continue to climb, I think we'll continue to get better guests. And as I've said before, I don't know where this is going to go. Ideally, my dream would be to somehow get tied in with the hockey news or some sort of network and be able to have some more resources, maybe someone that could edit the interviews and edit the podcast, because as of right now, I'm doing it all. Um, But if that doesn't happen, that's okay. I just really love talking hockey and I really love interacting with everybody that listens to the show. So thank you again for that and appreciate all the reviews. Appreciate everybody reaching out. Got a lot more interviews lined up and um, I'd say we have probably enough to go till around Christmas. So I'm starting to get stuff for the second part of the year. Now I try to tape these in a little bit of advance. And, and speaking of a little bit of advance, the interview we're airing today with Jim Fox, I actually taped at the beginning of the summer. So we didn't really get into anything now, but this is a time timely interview to go ahead and drop now because we cover the 80-81 season uh, with Jim Fox and the LA Kings. And I'll talk about the Kings in a second. I know we've paid a lot of attention to them so far during this season of snapshots in hockey history, but we really, really dive into how much the game has changed and how much society has changed in itself, both in North America and, and really all over the world. And I think this is a perfect time to air this episode because of what happened last week with Don Cherry. I am a huge fan of Don Cherry. I find him entertaining. I find him enjoyable. I don't always agree with what he believes in. And the other thing is, nowadays, you have to be so careful what you say. I am like a speck on the radar of the hockey media. I'm not even a speck on the radar. I'm not even on the radar. And I'm still incredibly cautious with what I say because I don't want to offend anybody. When you go back at look at Don Cherry, Don Cherry, I don't want to call him a racist because I don't think he is. I think he's just very pro-Canadian. And a lot of his opinions sometimes come off as being a racist. 
And if you look back, especially in the early 90s, when the Soviets were coming by, he was downright brutal. And he would definitely not have gotten away with that today. I mean, really what he said, I don't think was anything necessarily that terrible in the sense of he was saying, I want more people to support uh, the military and wear poppies. You know, you come to this country, support our military. I don't think that was really that bad compared to some of the other things he said or could have said. But either way, he shouldn't have said it. And it, it just goes. It's just proof of how much times have changed. And during this interview, you're going to hear about the 80, 81 season with Jim Fox playing for the L.A. Kings. And, and you just the one thing I took away from this interview is how different of a time it was. Everything from when he got drafted. I mean, he wasn't even at the draft. He got a phone call to, you know, oh, OK, I'm, I'm there now. And then a couple of days later, he gets a call from another player and to kind of welcome him now. People, when they get drafted, are notified like within two seconds from their teammates on Twitter of, hey, welcome to the team. We're happy to have you. It's just a different time. Side note, I do want to apologize. I know I've paid a lot of attention to the L.A. Kings. That was not intentional. I really try to vary it up and do different teams. And we definitely have some different teams coming up in the next few weeks. It's just kind of the way this one played out. Um, so I apologize that we've given so much attention to the L.A. Kings. This will probably be the last L.A. Kings interview we do for probably a while. Um, but this is good. This is good. And for those that don't know Jim Fox, our guest this week, Jim is uh, played in the NHL for 10 years. He is active with the Los Angeles Kings. He's their color commentator on TV. Really knowledgeable guy, really soft-spoken, also runs a vineyard. Uh, great interview. We cover his 80-81 season, which was his rookie season in the NHL. We get into Marcel Dion. We talk about the LA Kings. Um, so great interview. And um, I'll go ahead and cut to this because this is probably the longest intro I've had in a long time. It is Hall of Fame weekend. Uh, I have actually started watching hockey again. So that's been fun. I saw the Washington Capitals play a little bit and I saw somebody else last weekend. I can't remember who it was. So I have started watching a little bit of hockey again. So I guess I'm getting settled into uh, the winter spirit. Finally, uh, side note, as everybody knows, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm laughing my tail off because as many of you know, I hate the Washington Redskins. And today I saw that you could actually get into their game against the Jets for six dollars. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Redskins have fallen that far down that you can get to an NFL game for six bucks. Awesome. Sorry, Dan Schneider. We're ready for you to go. Anyways, this isn't a football podcast. I digress. Here's our interview with Jim Fox. Enjoy it. We'll catch you on the flip side on the other side of the interview. You know, I, I got to tell you, you started off your career in the OMJHL and the year before you were drafted, you had this unbelievable season. You ended up scoring like 166 points played for the Ottawa 67s and Brian Kilray, even though you missed 11 games, you know, the NHL draft, I'm sure is on your radar, but it's not like today. There was no social media. There was no internet. Do you remember leading up to the draft kind of what was going on? And, and did you talk to anybody before the draft or did you have an agent? Uh, yeah, I had an agent, uh, uh, Norm Kaplan out of Montreal, and then when I was drafted to an American team, it was uh, Art Kaminsky that took over. But uh, they they had feelers out there, but I think that it is completely a completely different animal nowadays. Um, you know, the central scouting did have a list that they put out and all those types of things, but it just as in depth as it is now. So there's no you have an idea uh, as far as uh, prospect camp or uh, the combine and getting you know, being interviewed by different teams and things of that sort. I don't think it took place to even that one tenth of the way it is right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just leading up to the draft to me was, in all honesty, it was, okay, I'm just going to find out where I'm going to go to work. Yeah. And that's it. That's it. It wasn't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say I wasn't excited. I think I was really excited, but I, I just, the hype wasn't there like it is now. Well, I'm sure you had no idea where you were going. So you're probably like, okay, where am I going to live? Number one. And you're probably excited. And it's just like one of these things where it's like, hurry up. And, and I would think it's kind of get it over with. And it, it takes place June 11th in Montreal. The host city has the first overall pick and they take Doug Wickenheiser and just nine selections later, you're taken 10th overall by the Los Angeles Kings. What did you know about the Kings at the time? Because 
you know, now we've had Wayne Gretzky and, and, and I got to tell you, if there's anywhere I'd want to play hockey, it's LA. You got the, you have the best of everything, but back then coming from Canada, what did you know about the team? Um, I knew enough. Uh, I mean, I certainly knew about Marcel Dion. I mean, who didn't, mm-hmm. uh, he was the, the fixture. He was the name, uh, you know, the triple crown line, Jay Wells, who was one of the defensemen that was picked the year before me. Uh, I played against him in junior. Those types of things are how you kind of figure out what the team is all about. Uh, to say that I watched them every night or that they appeared on Hockey Night in Canada, you know, at once a week would be, uh, you know, a lie. It, it didn't happen that way. So I certainly knew about more uh, more about other teams than I did about the Kings. But again, once again, I don't. I'm. <laughs> And I, I've talked to many people about this before, and I, I almost feel bad that I, I feel like I'm downplaying it. But it's it, to me, it, it didn't matter who. It, it was just you know a chance to play in the NHL, and that's it. So the, I, you know, we can talk about the city, and I, I'm here 40 years later and love it. But it's just not, it's not something that. You know, if it was any other team, it would have been fine. It, that really, that's the way it was for me. I, I wasn't picking and choosing. I was being picked and, and uh, you know, hopefully getting to another level, another league, the best league in the world. And, and that was certainly good enough for me. And when you originally find out that you're drafted, does anyone from the Kings at the time contact you? Or were you in Montreal and had some face-to-face interaction? Because now everything's online. But back then, what did you do? I was actually at home. A uh, small town, Conniston, Ontario, just uh, outside of Sudbury. I uh, did not attend the draft. Uh, just, I don't think, I'm sure a lot of players did, but I don't think it was the automatic that it is now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just received the phone call probably, you know, five minutes after I was drafted, and that was it. Representative from the Kings calls, and that was it. No, nothing really, no details yet, just uh, that was going on. I, I will tell you that I think a, a neat little story that. About a week after that, I received a call from a guy I, I knew about, but I didn't. I mean, he grew up in Lavac, Ontario, which is very just on the other side of Sudbury, so very close to me. It was Dave Taylor called, mm-hmm. and he just, you know, he just said, "Hey, I want to welcome you to the Kings," and you know, we look forward to getting the train camp. And uh, didn't really know Dave because he was just just that generation or half generation or you know, four or five years older, five six, just just enough older where I didn't have a chance to play against him. Or, but um, I, I would say that in itself really. That made me feel more welcome than anything else because now you just have you know a player and someone who's going to be you know right beside you in the room and and that made me feel comfortable <laughs> even more so than just you know getting a call from uh, you know the the administrative part to make sure you know when training camp is and you know that that's about it. This is basically, I, I would guess, where your 40-year relationships with Mr. Taylor starts, because I know that you guys became really close. And, and do you remember when you eventually got down to L.A. and, and kind of what your first impressions were? Well, I can tell you what my first impressions are, were with Dave, and that was I was completely astounded by how how well-rounded his game was. I mean, I'd seen the numbers. I mean, he was putting up numbers already with the triple crown line, and they were just getting, you know, probably – they all made the all-star team that year, which was the game was in L.A. Uh, my first year. But just to understand how much he did for the team, I don't think you could know that unless you actually saw him play on a nightly basis. Uh, I don't think Dave is a guy that would jump out at you seeing him one time or twice. But when you're playing with him game, uh, game after game after game, uh, you know he, he, he blew me out of the water as far as how tough he was. But on the same hand, he blew me out of the water of how skilled he was. He, he had everything. Uh, you know, Marcel certainly had the, you know, got most of the exposure, and rightly so. You know, 731 goals by the time he's done. Uh, you know, and Charlie was so good. good. Uh, Mario Sard had a great year that year, made the all team in goal. So uh, it's just one of those things where Dave was, he was, I knew how that he was good. I just didn't know he was that good. So training camp gets ready to kick off. And you head to Victoria, British Columbia, which kind of threw me off that they would have training camp up there. But a few months beforehand, the Los Angeles Kings, they were really going through some changes. They announced that they had purchased a new farm team at Houston. For you, you've talked about how you didn't care where it was. You just wanted to get to the next level. But did you have any idea like, hey, look, I might be going to the big club or I might be starting in Houston. I'm not really sure. Was there any idea or any indication given to you? 
No, not at all. No indication. It was to go to camp, and I assumed I was going to make the team. That was my assumption. But I will tell you this, in all honesty, as far as I know, and maybe I'm incorrect, but I I don't think the Kings had the entire team in Houston. I think they were sharing it with someone. And I didn't, I think I sat out, I don't know, eight to nine, ten games my first year. Coach's decision, you know, just not couldn't crack the lineup. Uh, I, I I think that if the Kings did have more stability within their minor league system at the time, that I may have played some in the minors. But I think they were, had a little bit of instability there of what was going on. Uh, that they probably doubted whether sending you know someone down would you know at least a young guy like my, myself. They were probably having second uh, second guessing themselves about whether that would be the best thing. Uh, so you know, because you know, when you're sitting out, I didn't sit out a lot. I you know played I don't know how many games. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I sat I sat out like I say eight or ten games. Uh, coach's decision and. You know, maybe maybe there would have been a, a send down. Uh, nowadays, when you're looking at it, right, with all you know, with the teams, to a lot of teams now are trying to get the geography as, as close as possible, and the new western section of the American Hockey League with Ontario right here. Uh, if that was the case, I probably would have played a few games, if not more, in the minor leagues because it would have been you know the development issue would have been so easy. But with the Kings, the travel and communication, and like I said, I, I don't think they really had. Uh, that minor league system set up yet. So uh, that was something that really didn't enter my mind until post-season, you know, after the season was over. And I looked back on it and said, you know what, maybe I, I might have been sent down if, if they were a little bit more stable down there. Which is crazy because you never took a trip to the minors and you were right. They had the IHL, they had the AHL and, and the prior season they had been splitting teams. Literally, they had a team in the IHL that they were splitting with another club. So your memory is spot on. And you were also right. It was eight to nine games once the season started but you eventually the team leaves British Columbia and you guys head down for your first game at the forum it's September 30th and this is a preseason game and you're playing against the Edmonton Oilers and and I've heard so much about the Los Angeles forum but it was something that I never really experienced in my lifetime even watching on TV what was that building like uh I'm a pretty big sports fan mm-hmm. so you know the Lakers were showtime and you know Magic and Kareem and Big Game James and they just they had it so that that's if I can say it I was playing in the form as an LA King but I you know I always looked at it as a Lakers building that was just that's the honest truth they were so successful and they were so fun to watch and everyone all over them and they should have been because you know the excitement just how it's this the style that they played i didn't think about uh, you know until it was probably 85 86 five or six years in where i started to realize how uh you know iconic the form was i i, I really i didn't really look at it that way but i i caught on to it i certainly did and um you know, back in the day, it was, and of course, every you know, there's a there's a life cycle for everything, and it finally got a little bit too old, and just didn't have the amenities that was were needed to to have a successful you know operation of any sports franchise. So, but um, I'm sure there's a lot of stories from the from from the forum, and uh, you know, I know there's certainly till this day there's a lot of Kings fans who'll say they prefer the forum much better than Staples Center. Uh, for someone who works in that environment, I, I would disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, um, just, to, you know, I think the intimacy was there, certainly. And if that's what the fans are missing, I understand that. I understand it 100%. But unfortunately, the business side of, of any sports, you know, takes you to a situation where you have to have more suites and you have to have bigger buildings and you have to have you know, just the automatic situations uh, that maybe the individuality of some of the, you know, the, the, the buildings nowadays, maybe that goes away. Maybe there was more personality, more atmosphere in the older buildings. And, uh, and I think the forum probably had that. Well, I think it's fair what you said, because when I think of the forum, in all honesty, I think of the L.A. Lakers. And one of my questions that I, I, I wanted to, to ask you, and, and you are a Kings guy diehard. You've been with the organization 40 years. When you first got there, though, did it feel like the Kings were kind of second fiddle to the Lakers at the time? 
I never get the, a lot of my uh, answers today will be in retrospect. At the time, no. Sure. At the time, I'm just trying to work myself every day to make the team play a game. I'm not thinking about that. I'm not thinking about anything about that. I, I'm just going to to try to see if I can crack the lineup. And that's that's what I'm thinking about. And then you know when you get into games and then see you know what's going on. If if I'm not mistaken, that year I believe we had the best road record in the NHL. My first year, which is is incredible with the travel that we had. You guys were that was back that was, that was balanced schedule. We played two home and two against any other team in the league. And you guys were also and, in a conference with teams that were in the East Coast. Yeah, so it was it was that was that was a pretty good feat. That was a you know a good team we had. Uh, just jumping to another you know not to the question you asked, but uh, looking back now, we never really had any success. But the second fiddle, maybe I'll weave that back in. I think if they would have stuck with the teams a little bit longer, I think if if the management had more of a longer term outlook. I think we we could have had more success by keeping they, they changed the team every year. They changed, you know, eight to ten guys. They didn't let us grow together. We had a great first season and had a disappointing playoff, but we never had a chance to learn from that. You know, you come back and they just you know, that's a management situation. So maybe, maybe the things were not the number one priority. Uh, of uh, you know California sports, Doctor Bust, and all of that. Uh, but again, sometimes you have to earn that too. You have to give them reason to believe that you should be uh, given a little bit more uh, of the resources and priority and, and things to, to go like that. But uh, I mean, I, I remember my first year because we used to have the locker rooms. The Lake locker room would be on one side. They'd have restrooms and showers in the middle, and the Kings locker room on the other. Mm-hmm. And after practice one day, I walked into the Lakers locker room and Jack the trainer was there. And I said, Jack, what's going on? Hey, what's that? Nothing. And he was throwing away a brand new pair of shoes, back basketball, right into the garbage. I said, Jack, do you mind if I take them? <laughs> you know, do you mind? I mean, and, and believe me, they were not going to hit me. But I said, do you mind? I mean, so he said, no, go ahead. So I pick them up and they're, I still remember, a leather Adidas. They're white with the purple stripes. And they're low, uh, they're no uh, low cut or whatever you would call, and they were Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, and uh, you know that was just a nice little moment that we got to have uh, when they were they were winning some pretty good uh, world championships at the time. Well, you're also a single guy. You are trying to find your spot, so you're doing anything you can to save money. So I get it. And there's a couple other guys on the team that you end up rooming with, Larry Murphy and Greg Turion. And we talked about the Triple Crown line, but let's talk about this trio. You guys all made your debuts together and you end up living together. What was it like playing with these younger guys? Larry, of course, would go on to play almost more games than anyone. And Greg Teron was, you know, a younger guy. What do you remember about those two other rookies? Because the three of you were kind of grouped together, not necessarily playing together, but the media kind of covered you guys together, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, you're right. We came in together. And, I mean, but we, actually, I I played with Larry the previous year because the Canadian entry into the world championships was the Peterbilt Peets with pickups. Oh, okay. They picked up other players from other teams. So that's what they, so I, Larry was on Peterbilt. So I ended up playing uh, the world championship with him. Uh, so I knew him that way, played against Greg. Uh, so, but yeah, the team was there. We were the young guys, we were the new kids on the block. Uh, we ended up moving to a place right on the Strand and for the people who live in the Los Angeles area. Um, I kind of I kind of brag now. He said my first address was 4214 The Strand, Manhattan Beach, which if, if you know that, that's oh right on the beachfront. Uh, those properties are worth millions and millions of dollars now. Gorgeous. Um, three, three, three guys trying to figure it out. Uh, you could see right away with Larry. I mean, we knew how, I mean, I knew how good it was because I just could play against him. And again, again, against Peterborough, Peterborough and Ottawa had a real big rivalry because we were the scorers and they were the defensive specialists. And, but I would play against Larry all the time. Uh, but to, you know, he just came in and dazzled everybody. He, 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 he was, you know, Peter Stoughton won the rookie of the year that year. I think it was one of the reasons they ended up, you know, changing the the qualifications for the year and putting in an age uh, limitation 
Um, but, you know, 18, 19 years old, Larry comes in and just, you know, he was playing mad. He was playing minutes more than anybody. Uh, and uh, Greg was, you know, I played a lot with Greg my first year, a lot. He was a centerman. I was a right winger. Uh, Jensen was a left winger. We played a lot together, fourth line. Um, and, you know, Greg, you know, rest in peace, passed away. Uh, he's... He, he was, you know, he, he was, in, it happens a lot, right? He was a, put some real good numbers in junior, but when he came to the NHL, he had to change and he became a real good penalty killer, a real good defensive specialist, uh, that type of guy. And, uh, uh, that's, that's what, that's what you have to do, right? You have right. to do whatever they need you to do. And that's what he was able to do. So, uh, but you know, we, we had some great times. Uh, we spent a lot of time, uh, down here in the South Bay area, the beach areas. And, uh, I remember, uh, Greg's, uh, Fiance came up. Uh, my fiance came up for, for the first Christmas, and you know we're there in December, and we just walk about 100 yards, and we're playing beach volleyball on the beach. So uh, it was it was a great great setup. Uh, we had a ball, and uh, again I mentioned Greg passing away, but uh, Larry, uh, myself, and Greg were were good friends, uh, and we, we always will be. You know, that's the way it is. Before we get on to the season, most important question I'm going to ask: Who did the cooking and who did the cleaning? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, no one did the cleaning. <laughs> so that was it. Oh, you just get by. You just get by. You just, you know, eat out and then eat here and back. It, it was, it was, it was fairly easy. You're on the road half the time anyway. So uh, it really didn't matter. But uh, yeah, I would say it was uh, uh, hiring a maid would have been a good idea. That, w- that would have probably been the best decision we could have made. Well, you guys end up rolling out of the preseason. You end up making the club in your first game, and we're not going to go game by game, but I've got to talk about this first game. The Kings end up smashing the Detroit Red Wings in front of 11,200 fans during an exciting opener. The score was 8-1. to Dave Lewis had his hands full, issuing over 188 penalty minutes, but the highlight of the evening was a goal by a rookie named Jim Fox. What do you remember about this first NHL game? I have, I, you know, I, I remember the goal. It was a weird goal. I, I was skating to the right wing, deep in the corner, just threw it almost, I think, from behind the net, hit the goal and went in type thing. And it was, it was, it was one of the later goals, so it didn't really mean anything for the game. The game was already over that way. Just looking back on it now, I, I, was, I probably did too much thinking, just constant thinking about where you stand, what you're going to do, can you make it, will you make it, all those types of things. And that's part of, again, the guy was talking about earlier, growing as a team. That's where, unfortunately, I don't think the franchise allowed us to grow because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of three or four kids just trying to make it. So your focus is on your own game, and, and you're not necessarily thinking team concepts. You're thinking, about well, how do I stay in the lineup? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think if, if you play together with a group long enough, that goes away, and you really start coming together. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think they allowed us to do that because it was just sweeping changes basically year to year. But um, I, 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 I don't know. I wish I was more. I really don't think a lot about the first game, first guy, first goal. I, I, I don't know. No, no. And, Maybe and... there might be someday when I do and say something, but I just. Uh, it was what it, it was. was. Certainly a, it was certainly an honor, and there was certainly a lot of nerves. And there's no question about that. Everyone talks about it. And, and just a change of generations. Back then, and I love it. I love when I hear players saying, well, I was really nervous. I was, like, we, we couldn't say that. You wouldn't say that back then. You wouldn't admit that. Uh, but I think in the long run, it ends up hurting you when you, when you don't talk about things like that. But yeah, uh, rightly so, a lot of nerves, a lot of, a lot of butterflies in the stomach. And uh, I think more relief at the end of the game, especially the way it turns out, kind of an easy win where then you could just go, okay, now, now we can go forward here with the rest of the year. You move forward and play the next game in Calgary, which was a new team in the National Hockey League. They had moved up from Atlanta and you played in the Corral. I'm curious, that was one of the first games at the old Corral. What was that building like? I, I mean, I don't hear anything about it. Yeah, it, it was a very, very weird construction. A smaller building. If I'm not mistaken, they had like two rows of seats in the in the players' bench. <laughs> the boards were extremely high compared to, so they weren't like if you talk about a uniform building. Not no, they were really high. So like making changes on the fly, 
jumping over the boards, things like that. It was, it was really different. You had to watch out a little bit. I mean, it was an extra, I don't know, six inches to a foot. So, I mean, you know, you usually just jump up, up. that type of thing was, was weird. I remember Jerry Korup actually getting hit into the, the dasher board. And he, you know, Jerry's a big man, big man. But because of how high that, that top level was, uh, he ended up, I think, losing his full front full, four teeth just gone. Because, uh, you know, I think in other buildings it would have been a lot lower and he would have missed it. But even if he did, you know, was hit, maybe fell forward a little bit or fell down a little bit. He, so uh, that was, that that's a memory. That was a weird building. Uh, I remember their team, too. They were huge. The Calgary Flames, you talk about, you know, you get your second game and you're, in the, you're trying to, I'm just a little guy, but I'm a little guy to anyone. These guys were huge. Uh, but that building, yeah, uh, just a whole, you know, I don't know, 6,000 feet, maybe maybe more. I don't I but really the, the, the hockey, the, the boards and the benches and really, really weird. Well, after that Calgary loss, things start rolling for the LA Kings. During this stretch, you would go on to win the next, or you would go on to not have a loss in the next 10 games. Charlie Simmer scored a hat-trick against the Quebec Nordiques as one of the highlights. Three rookies all contributed on the scoreboard in a 4-2 win over the Washington Capitals, as well as your first appearance in Madison Square Garden in a 6-3 win over the Rangers. Goalie Ron Graham was quoted in the LA Times as saying, the team was really coming together. Jim, that's an awesome start. You couldn't have asked for anything better. I know we talked about the team eventually changing, but at this point, how did you feel like you were fitting in? Did you feel like you were getting adjusted okay? Never felt comfortable at all. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a fair answer. Just, you know, you're trying to. You're, I'm just trying to stay in the lineup. And I was used to, you know, going from, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes a night, even as a forward, to to not as much. So you're just, you're just trying to stay in. You're trying to. You know, practice uh, and you know work at work at it that way. And, uh, I, I will tell you this: looking back on it, the extremely underrated part was Bob Barry, the head coach. Extremely underrated. And I wanted to. Get I think to Bob. he did a, I wanted to get to Bob. I think he did a hell of a job. You know, doing whatever he could with a group of guys that he had. And then again, back to when we touched earlier, you know, Bob's gone after a year. So it's just the stability factor was not there at all. Uh, but uh, just, you know, you're talking about these wins and, you know, streaks and stuff. I, I thought Bob was, was excellent. What kind of coach was Bob? Was he a player's coach, an X's and O's guy? How would you describe him? He was a real quiet, rough guy, rough, rough guy, you know, uh, and I think probably at that time, that was the type of coach that most were. Very little communication, you know, on a daily basis with players. And because I'm speaking now, I see, you know, the coaches tell us now, oh, we want to talk to every guy at least once a day. Like once, you know, even either for the head coach or the assistants, or they want to, that just didn't exist. I think he was, you know, I, I never played for Daryl Sutter, but Bob really created a, uh, he created a get ready to play atmosphere in the locker room every game. And, uh, you know, he was an ex player, an ex king. Um, he created, he, you know, how much extra knows did we have back then? I think it was just starting to become a big part of it. But as far as getting a group of guys ready to go, I think he was excellent. You end up coming up against the Philadelphia Flyers next, and it's Pat Quinn's, the head coach of this team, and they end up laying a beating on the LA Kings 8-2. to And this was a tough loss, especially because the Kings traditionally had so much of a hard time, such a hard time. 0-20-4 was their record the past 24 games against the Philadelphia Flyers. Why were they so difficult to play against? Well, I think that they had a... They had a franchise that believed in the unity. The, they had a franchise that believed in a style of play. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that's hard to come by. And, of course, it started with being Bob Street bullies and it carried on. It's just that way. You know, Bobby Clark was still there when I played. It's, that's something that helped build success is that when your franchise is single-minded, focused, 
and playing a certain style. And I think that's why they were successful. They never varied from that. Uh, at this point, the Kings would suffer one more loss against the Montreal Canadiens before getting back on trap track. In November 10th at the Forum against the New York Rangers, you scored your second NHL goal. Also in this game, though, Gary Unger scored his 400th. He's a player I'm not familiar with at all. Um, I know he would leave the Kings shortly after this and only play another season or two in the NHL. What do you remember about Gary Unger? Well, see, he would be one of the guys that I knew a lot about mm-hmm. because, you know, he had the Ironman streak um, basically going when he was with the St. Louis Blues. And uh, so, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, he came up with Detroit perhaps and then joined St. Louis, you know, the expansion draft. Those logistics I wouldn't know, but. I mean, Gary Younger to me is a guy that was on the hockey cards. I mean, he was, she was a star. He was a big deal. He was a big deal. He was a big deal. And, you know, he was, I remember him being noted for his appellate killer, short handed goals, uh, you know, no helmet, blonde hair, uh, probably a bigger guy for, you know, for a skilled guy, you know, but, but uh, I would say, you know, when you join that team, that, that you know, potential Hall of Famer, that's the type of uh, that's the type of respect he he garnered and guaranteed. Now, was he near the end of his career? Yes, I don't think there's any question about that. Okay. Automatic respect because of the career that he built, and, and that's just something when you walk, walk into a locker room, he's one of the guys that uh, that you know and you respect because of that. You talked about him. We talked about Dave Taylor. Did anybody kind of take you under their wing as a rookie and, and really try to guide you and, and show you what an NHL hockey player does? Well, you know, Dave was was he was very helpful that way. And of course, we play the same position. So, but I will say that a guy that played the same position as us also was Mike Murphy, mm-hmm. your team captain. Yes, yeah. and I mean it was probably not till the next year, but. Where basically I took over his ice time, you know, changing of the guard, next group coming in type of thing. Uh, but that's where I know Mike, he gets even more respect for me because, you know, he'd spend time after practice throwing pucks around the boards because in the NHL, the board work was much more important than it was, you know, in, in you know, juniors and where you could basically do whatever you wanted. But, you know, you had to work boards in your own zone and get the puck out and just some check it out sometimes. And so, you know, he would, he would be there after practice just you know, helping and doing that type of stuff and tricks and how, you know, what happens if the fence is bearing down here and what do you try to do? Um, so, Again, it's probably a little bit more in hindsight now, but again, like I said, the following year where I, I took his spot or took his ice time, uh, that's, that's why he has to see. You know, that's that's a that's a player that's looking out for the team, and not a, you know he's he's trying to. I'm sure he's probably trying to play as long as he can and keep as many minutes as he can and do it. But he saw me as a young player that needed some work, and he spent time doing that. And that's why he was captain. He put the team first. And as we get towards the end of November, the team has a pretty interesting experience that I don't think I've really ever heard of happening to a team. The team showed up on Saturday afternoon before a game at the Maple Leaf Gardens when the entire team is stopped from getting on the ice. According to your teammate, Glenn Goldup, Harold had flipped out, he told the L.A. Times. Ballard, Harold Ballard had evidently was unhappy with the treatment that the Leafs received while they were in Los Angeles earlier in the season. So he said that the Kings were not allowed to have a pregame skate at the Maple Leaf Gardens. I know he's one of the more uh, interesting characters in hockey and you never played for him. But does this ring any bells or do you have any memories of Harold Ballard at all? Oh, I have a lot of memories of Harold Ballard, but not not that specific instance. Uh, I will tell you this when I'm going to Toronto as an NHLer and now my family's able to come. So I would be focused on my family and, you know, something like that. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I do not remember that at all as far as not being allowed on the ice or anything like that. That's, but I, I would say if it happened in a different city, I might've remembered it because I wouldn't have had family there. I wouldn't have had, you know, that type of thing where, you know, it only happened twice a year where everyone could have a chance. It was close enough to my hometown where they could have a chance to come and see me play. So, uh, you might not remember Certainly. that incident. 
But what can you tell me not. about Harold Ballard? Well, I mean, we knew about him because, you know, I'm, I, I grew up 200 miles north of Toronto, so uh, he was in the news quite a bit. He was in, he was a very uh, in-the-news type of owner. So, And he did have a lot of idiosyncrasies that were written about and talked about and, uh, you know, old-fashioned, but uh, a lot of things throughout the years with coaches and Firing, I don't know, Roger Nielsen, how many times he died. I think it was Harold was still in. I could be wrong, but uh, just a lot of weird things that went on, and, and they were always talked about. And to a certain extent, at least when I came up, uh, he was probably uh, in the news more than the team, which was probably not the way the team wanted it. Sure, sure, I understand it. You guys would go on to win that game 5-2 to two after the game. Kings GM Kevin McGuire was furious. He said he'd file a report about the incident. We haven't talked about Kevin at all. What was your relationship with the Kings GM at the time and, and really management for that matter? Well, that would be George McGuire. Oh, George McGuire. Why did I write Kevin? I'm yep. sorry about that. Thank you. No problem. Not George was an old, you know, old fashioned, old school, gruff. He was never said a word. And when he did, he just rumble and mumble. And so, uh, again, again, I don't think it was different from a lot of different, uh, teams or, or personnel. Uh, it was just a different time, a completely different generation, and uh, things were done differently. So uh, hardly any interaction with him at all. Uh, if he did come down into the room, I, I, I can't remember it. You know, we hear about it now, right? Where right. GM two or three times a year, they make them, you know, make it known that they went down. To talk, you know, uh, or just you know having players meetings all the time. We never had that. That just wasn't it. So. Different, um, different time. Different, different time. yeah. I know George had a military background, background, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, very regimented, very gruff, very old-fashioned, and uh, that's the way he went about his business. The team marches into December, and Marcel Dion now scores his 400th goal in a three-win win over the Vancouver Canucks. We haven't really touched on Marcel. You eventually would play with Wayne Gretzky towards the end of your career. You played with some amazing goal scorers and have played against some others. Where would you rank Marcel Dion? Top five? I'll say this. You know, he's a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. But I honestly believe because of where he played most of his great years, which is in Los Angeles, and at the time, under the radar, even though he was a Hall of Famer, I think he's still underrated. Really? I, I, yeah, I think, I mean, uh, again, his size, but his, his strength, his fighting through checks and getting tripped and hacked and whacked and it just didn't stop him. You know, they'd be breaking sticks over him. It didn't matter. Uh, just, you know, hockey player. That's, that's all, you know, that's, he was a hockey player. He had, he had incredible, you know, the, the, the lateral movement because of his stature, low center of gravity, the way he could move right, left, back, forth, uh, you know, but he did. The one thing he did, he uh, he shot the puck. He could have I mean, that quick you know, release. You don't, you don't get seven. You don't get seven hundred thirty-one goals by not shooting. You sh he knew what his deal was, and his deal was to get it and shoot it. And you know it was a great combination with Charlie hanging around for rebounds and getting to the crease and blocking. I'm sure setting up so many screens and Dave, you know, getting the puck and beating guys one on one and going to the corner and but all the way those guys were together. But Marcel was just a pure shooter. Hmm. When he got over that blue line, I guarantee you the puck is going to get on that. Hmm. He is going to get it there somehow, and he's going to make it happen. Um, the power play that first year, I, I don't know what the numbers were, but I, 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 I can remember because at times I was considered for the second unit. And, uh, you know, we were like the Maytag, uh, you know, minute to time. You're too young for that too. But uh no they wouldn't have to skip because they would score. The hard <laughs> it, was, hat. it was almost it was it was as automatic as you think. Uh, and again, I don't know what our ranking was. I don't know what the percentages were, but uh, so that's again Marcel back to that, you know, when you give him a man advantage, that's it's that's just his eyes light up and he'll he'll fill the net. 
And all three of those guys were at the top of the league in scoring that season, which shows to say just goes to show you how incredible their scoring was. And I agree with you. You think about it almost some of these guys that play in these these markets where it's not as popular, not Toronto, not Montreal. They didn't, especially at that time, really get the attention. And L.A., if I'm not mistaken, was kind of an outside market at the time, wasn't it? Well, I would say I would say so. Yeah, sure. I mean, that until Gretzky came here, I don't think. I mean, Luke was already here at the time, but but it took Wayne to to put the Kings on the map. I, mean, I, I don't know if I, I'm as I'm as good a witness as anyone because I was here before, saw what was going on, and then you know I met with some. Eh, we never really had success on the ice. We had some decent regular seasons, but nothing in the playoffs as far as success. You know, past the first round type of thing. Uh, but you know that's that's where you know the markets just and rightly so we didn't give them a reason to to think about us when Wayne came there was a reason and and that was that was an incredible turnaround but uh, again back to Mark, even Dave I mean I, I know there's I, I I say he's a Hall of Famer but I'm I'm looking through you know things called glasses, but I saw his effect on a franchise. <laughs> if that group is not there, if the triple crown's not there, who knows if the Kings are even still around to get Wayne Gretzky. I mean, that, you know, Dr. Bust was so, I think the Kings were fortunate that Dr. Bust was so successful in all the other things he was doing that, he was able to just kind of, you know, take the losses and keep going. But if you want to take a look at health of a franchise, I'm sure we were down near the bottom. You talked about <laughs> you talked about Dr. Jerry Buss and in a game at the end of the month against the St. Louis Blues, he walks into the dressing room after the game with a cardboard cart of beers and says, boys, congrats. We stole one tonight. He sounds like he was an awesome owner as a player on that team. What did you think about playing for Jerry Buss? As a hockey player, I'll tell you why he was an awesome owner. Because he knew he didn't know anything about hockey, but he knew how to take care of his players. He knew how to make them. The market, again, I'm not blaming, rightly so, because we didn't have success. The market didn't have much as far as, you know, we just we just didn't make a dent in the market. Mm-hmm. But... Um, that didn't matter to Dr. Buss. He took care of us. Uh, little things back then. We're not making life-changing money back then. So uh, they had a program at, at the forum where the employees would build up points and you can get you know TVs and refrigerators and all that type of stuff. So little perks. Uh, he, he really took care of it. You know, even, as, even as hockey players, which were not, the, again, the, the most popular group, he, you know, trips to Hawaii for regular season success that he would do that. I mean, that's so, and he, I don't think he would ever, and that again, the reason I think he's a great owner is this, he would never come into the room and pretend to buy hockey. He, he knew where to, he knew to because hire people. Yeah. He knew that he didn't know. So, but he also knew that, you know what, if you have a chance to take care of some people, you take care of them. He had the resources to do so. And, uh, Again, I, I think I'd like to have thought that maybe more stability, long-term thought, maybe would have helped us, again, with keeping teams together and keeping a group of guys together a longer time where they were able to to learn from mistakes and build on them and then become stronger as a group. Uh, but I, you know, I, I saw also the what the Lakers were doing and, and just, you know, the form and that Dr. Bus was incredible, incredible. Uh, you know, that's yeah, somewhat of a, a pioneer, right? In the way he was treating players and you know, we didn't really have, uh, we didn't have suites back then at the, at the forum, but he had uh, special seats that were limited to a certain group. They were still within the regular seating area, but they were, you know, they were, and he had the Senate seat program, which means you could, you buy a seat for every event in the building. So the Lakers, the Kings and the, whatever they had going in concerts. So you would, so 
those, and then even well, the Great Western Farm. I don't know if a lot of people know that name. Uh, Great Western is actually a bank. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't know. They say here Great Western just because we're in the West. They think it was just kind of a, a tag. But well, no. It was as far as I'm aware, the first time the naming rights to a building were sold. Very innovative. Uh, so yeah. So he was a pioneer in a lot of different ways. You know, not necessarily from playing with him, but then even after when I retired and then being involved in more of a, you know, the business part of the team and, and th- how things worked that way. And then just to study whether he was doing with the Lakers uh, was, well, that's, that's, you know, a recipe for success. He definitely took care of his players. And there's a story I want to share with you that kind of, I think, will reinforce how generous he was as the Kings ended the year in 1980 with a four, nothing loss to the Montreal Canadians. The new year starts. And by mid January, the Kings recall a player named John Gibson from the minors, who was a player I'd never heard of. He was six, three, 208 pounds. And while playing for Saginaw the prior year, Gibson had over 293 penalty minutes. When Bob Barry was asked why he recalled this player, he smirked and said, well, you realize we're playing the flyers next game. We both know that the Flyers were incredibly rough around that time, and and fighting was big in the NHL at this time. John Ziegler had been on Capitol Hill earlier in the year. Uh, The prior season, some of the Boston Bruins went in the stands. I think this was the year that the New York Rangers went in the stands. Either way, the Flyers would win this game 7-2, to and Gibson would get sent down a few games later. But Jerry Buss makes sure he doesn't go home empty-handed. He sends him home with a TV. I just thought that was such a neat story about a guy who I don't think he ever played again in the NHL at least got to go home with something and especially something that was at that time. I don't think that was done a lot. Was it? Well, Dr. Buss did. He did. And I, I mean, I know John because I played a junior and knew how really tough he was and he was a tough guy. And, and again, I think that's one of the areas where again, Dr. Buss, you want to talk about X's and O's. He didn't really know much about, but if you talk about, you know, building a team, I'm sure it was made known to him that tough guys were important back then. I mean, you, every team had three or four tough guys. <laughs> so, uh, it was, it was something. And then, you know, I think he understood that the guy's putting himself on the line when you play that role. And, um, actually, I think that, but Dr. Buss, that was, that was kind of, he was very, I'll be honest, like, just a little thing, which became, it became a, it's, it was, you know, because I was able to stay around a long period of time there. Uh, but at Thanksgiving, every single employee, every single employee, they would deliver turkeys to the, the, the forum in the morning or after a practice or morning skate. At Thanksgiving, everyone would get a turkey. And then it became, you know, you kind of hear about it. And then the next year you get one. And then actually, it's, I know it's just a turkey. But though it's just those are little things that build together. And I think it just shows that he's giving a little extra thought to, to people as people as opposed to just employees. Mm. At the end of the month, the four Kings that were named the NHL All-Star Game, we talked about Marcel Dion, Dave Taylor, Charlie Simmer, and goaltender Mario Lassard. We've talked about the potent offense, and we haven't really talked about goaltending, though. I know the Kings had a couple goalies come in and out. What did you, What was the goaltending situation for the Kings this season? Well, I think Mario took it over, and he, he was, you know, Mario was, he was an athletic goaltender. He was just all over the place. He was... But you know, diving saves and just and he 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 caught the attention of uh, a lot of people around the league. Of course, making the All Star team and rightly so with the team record. But he he I, I, he made seventy some saves one night. I think in Minnesota. Wow. He, he it was he was he was fun to watch. Like he was a very athletic uh, goaltender. So. Uh, we now, you know, we we would joke now. He wasn't the most athletic-looking goaltender. Uh, you consider <laughs> a little bit chubby, out of shape. Uh, but again, just get the job done, right? That's right. how you do. And he got the job done, and that was it. So, huge reason for the success of the team that year uh, was was he just was he was red hot all year long. Things go a little south in February. The King would go on. The Kings would go on to go eight games without a win, and a change is made with Rick Chartraw being brought in from the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for picks. Uh, we always talk about trades on this podcast, and and here you are, you're a rookie. I never got the impression from what you've told me so far that you ever really felt comfortable when a new guy comes in. And, and granted, he's a defenseman. Are guys worried that it's going to throw off the chemistry? I mean, you probably weren't worried for your job, but it, when somebody new comes in, you know, what's everyone's thought? What's the room's thought when a trade like that is made? 
I don't think I don't. And if if I'm, I'm just going to go by the way you asked that question. My uncomfortable initial was with just trying to get into the lineup every night. So you weren't worried about another guy. It was literally just focusing on you every night. Well, I'm not worried about another guy. No, I, and I think that's I'm, fair because you're so well, not insecure, but you're no, no, worried no, about it, you. Well, no, when a guy like uh, Rich, Rick Sarger comes in, it's a little bit easier to understand because I think his role is easier to specify and determine. Big, strong defenseman. Ah. Played wing, played wing in his career. You know, go back and forth. Once you guys back, he did go back and forth. Wing, for you know, but now he's also coming from Montreal Canadiens. And I think everyone understands what that franchise is all about. So, uh, but uh, to me, it was more, it's just size, right? That's mm-hmm. Rick. So when he when he comes in, you know, I'm pretty sure that would make a lot of guys feel good about what's going on. I understand completely. I understand. And on February 26th, an article was published in the LA Times that the Kings were going to make some youth. Move, we're going to make some changes and go with a youth movement. They placed Glenn Gold up on waivers. It's reported that Gary Unger will most likely be traded. So this is kind of that start of the changes that you've talked about in the interview. Um, you know, we talked about Jerry Buss. He wasn't very hands-on. We talked about the GM and and kind of the his thoughts of, of constantly making changes. In the locker room, what was the chemistry like on this team, though? Was it a close-knit team? Oh, yeah. I, again, I, I would go back to Bob Berry. Uh, the, the, the ability to get a group ready to play... 80 times a year is tough. And I think Bob did a heck of a job that way. There was no doubt what the team was. It was the triple crown line taking the lead. They were the you know, number one line. The, the Larry Murphy was turning heads because of how much ice time he was. There's no doubt. But, we, you know, Billy Harris, I remember him. Uh, Dave Lewis, you mentioned. Uh, you know, we had Gary Korab. We had a lot of veteran guys, too. So maybe there's a time of getting gold up, the guy you were just mentioning, you know. But I, I've again our record by the end of the year was if I'm not again fourth best in the league if I can remember correctly. You nailed um, it. You nailed it. It was fourth so best we, in the league. Yeah. So we had we had a lot of fun. I say we were very close as a group, and, and that's where we try to try to figure out. But again, I, I think now that I've gone through it. As a player, and I've seen teams, and I saw two Stanley Cup teams here in LA. I know that you have to eliminate the doubt in players' minds of where they are, where they stand in their career, what's going on. But, you know, that has to be eliminated, and that's a big part of having a winning team is where the players have no doubt whatsoever why they're there, and when they're going out there, they're, they're they know that they're going to be there. They know that. That's not an issue, um, and it takes it takes a lot of success to get and build that. So and we unfortunately didn't have that. We didn't have a lot of teams that had that. So, uh, like I'm saying, you know, I, I thought they made changes from year to year. Where I, I would like to have thought that if if more of a core was kept together um, from year to year, perhaps again the down times could be turned into good times because you do get a chance to to learn from mistakes and learn how things are going wrong, but with the same guys in the room or every team changes certain guys every year that happens. But, mm-hmm. but, but the, you know, back then I think the core would be considered 12 to 14 guys. Right. You know, I think now on the salary cap, it's probably considered five to six guys. Exactly. I was going to say uh, six guys. You know, yeah. So, so now that's, that's changed, but um, so, but no one trades happen. I, I don't, you know, I guess if it was for a right winger who was coming in again, I'm playing fourth line mid, so I'm just trying to stay in the lineup. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you're a you know if you're a power play right winger and 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 they pay for a power play, then I'm sure you would start thinking about it. But um, uh, with the specific play that you mentioned there, I think everyone understood that Rick was there because he was bigger and stronger. Another trade takes place as we mix up the team a little bit longer and this time or a little bit more veteran goalie and future NHL GM Jim Rutherford comes in as well as the famed one of the famed Frenchmen Buffalo Sabres forward Rick Martin, who was incredibly fast, but he was hurt 
at the time. And I think there was some stipulations with his trade. And what do you remember about, did you ever play with Rick at all? I know that he was kind of made, I don't know how much longer he played in the league, but when he played at his game, he was fast. Yeah, he was hurt. He had a knee issue. And I, I, I played some games with him. Yes, the games he played with the Kings. Uh, but again, he comes in as a guy that I've known and watched and growing up as a kid. I mean, but I'll be honest with you all. I remember Rick more for this. And it was at the time it was the rehab he was doing. And back then, this is just the time where the electrical stimulation was coming out where when you had muscles that needed to be worked on or rehab, they would put some electrodes and you would crank it up and it would stimulate the muscle. And I remember him, man, taking that machine back. And it was not, nowadays they have the same machines, but they, uh, <laughs> they've uh, been modernized a little bit. Uh, his pain tolerance was, he was unbelievable. Just trying to rehab, just trying to get his leg back. But I don't think it ever happened. I don't think that the knee ever responded the way it was previous to the injury. And, and unfortunately that's where it would be disappointment for us because a uh, dynamic player who uh, unfortunately just not, did not physically could not do it anymore. That's a shame. As we, as we wrap up March and move into April, the team ends up uh, ending on a very good note. You pick up road wins against the Jets, the North Stars, the Chicago Blackhawks, as well as win at home against the Jets again. And your last game will be against the Colorado Rockies, which is a, a team that, of course, you know, I'm kind of curious. Why do you think it didn't work out in Colorado and they end up moving to Jersey a year or two later? Well, I think the general concept would be this and that the NHL was not the same business then as it is now. And the weaker teams did fall off the side. Uh, there was a couple of movements, but the ownerships were not as strong as they were as they are now. The, the business model, uh, you know, it was more one team for themselves as opposed to a group, you know, TV contracts and the revenue you produce from that. I think that gives a solid base to a lot of franchises. So you can go through some downtimes, uh, but uh, unfortunately they just were not able to make that, you know, and then, of course, when they come back, when they come back from well, Quebec moves there, they win the cup the first year. <laughs> it's just funny and how it works out, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, just because of the overall business model of the league not being as strong back then as it is now, I think that the chances for franchises to move or shift or change or were a lot greater then than they are now. Well, as we wrap things up, I mean, we could, there's a first round matchup that you guys play against the New York Rangers, which unfortunately did not go the King's way. It had a bench clearing brawl. It, it had a lot, and we could do a whole nother episode on that, but I've taken so much of your time. But before we wrap up, I, I do have one question. Was the rookie dinner still a, tr was that a tradition back then? And do you remember if it was what your rookie dinner was? Uh, we did not have rookie dinners back then. Uh, they had old-fashioned initiation hazing. <laughs> uh, so a, a lot of those stories are uh, a lot of those stories are kept where they should be, which are behind the doors of the locker room. But uh, I would tell you that I think the reason that they do have now rookie dinners is because perhaps to some extent those fun and games got away from some people at times and. Uh, we're not as accepted, uh, but we had, you know, they cut your hair and your eyebrows and everything else off. And, uh, you know, they, I, I, it was, it was just a group of guys, the veteran guys would get the rookie one day and that would be uh, an hour of your life that you will never, ever, ever forget. <laughs> and, but it's something that, you know, back then that was the way everyone welcomed you. You know, you're part of it now. And, uh, uh, that's an uncomfortable feeling. And I, you know, that's a, I think there's more, you know what I think, I think is more as free agency opened up more where you have more players leaving teams as European players start to come over a little bit more where maybe they're not, they don't have those uh, rituals where they grew, you know, they grew up. Uh, I think that's why it kind of died out to the point where now where they hurt you in your in your uh, in your wallet as opposed to uh, you know. I was going to say maybe uh, it's a little bit safer for everybody that we just buy everybody dinner and a couple beers I at think the bar. I, I think it's a lot safer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but it, you know what? It's it it was a uh, an element 
of the hockey culture at the time that every team was doing it and it pulled teams together. Well, that is, I, uh... I, I, I don't think, I don't think there's any, you know, and we, I think back then we spent a lot more time with each other. Um, because of, you know, everyone had a roommate on the road. Um, you know, that now that changes based on seniority. I'm not saying one's good or bad. I'm just saying it was different. And, um, uh, perhaps back then it was, uh, just another one of those ways to, to be part of a group. Well, I think that's, uh, we'll go ahead and, and end it on that. But before we do, Jim, I, I've got to ask, I know you're involved in so many things. You have a charity golf tournament. You uh, are, are producing wine now. Can you kind of give everybody, you're on TV every week. I, how could I not in, include that during the season? Can, can you kind of tell everybody if they want to reach out? Do you have Twitter? Do you have social media? What are you doing? How can they get your wine? Can you kind of fill everybody in? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm still on the board for the King's Care Foundation. Uh, just after I retired, I, I spent time in the department and actually was there when well, I was I was head of the department when we formed uh, King's Care. Uh, so that's always still close. But I'll, I'll be honest, I, I don't do as much as I used to on a day to day basis. Uh, and part of the reason for that is now they have full time staff to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when I was involved, it was basically me heading the department. Von uh, Munez who passed away. He was our travel guy, but he helped out. Uh, the wives, uh, you know, were so big part of that and getting things together. Um, now I think that everyone has understood how important those elements to a franchise are. Again, becoming part of a, a community. Uh, I think they've they spend you know full time staff on it because it is needed and it helps the community to have a sports team involved. So uh, King's Care is, is a big part of what we do. And uh, uh, I would say uh, with the wine, uh, Patine Cellars, uh, uh, P-A-T-I-N-E, Cellars, and the wine cellars. So Patine is French for to have skated, the past tense of skate. Mm. Uh, our winemaker, his name is Mike Smith, and he is one of the best. He is just highly touted now and just doing a phenomenal job. We make Pinot Noir, California Pinot Noir. We have three vineyards we source group, uh, grapes from. Uh, that's what we do, single vineyard Pinot Noir, meaning we don't blend them together. We bottle them as a single vineyard. Uh, I would say it's a celebration or a, you know, a, a, a special occasion type of wine. Um, so you can find information at patinacellars.com. Uh, we're very proud of that project because it's it's high high quality and then it's uh, being well received by not only our, our customers and clients but also the, the critics. Twitter uh, patnaysellers dot com uh, uh, just pat, at patnaysellers uh, with myself it's just at Jim Fox nineteen and that's where I concentrate more on the Kings and hockey and things of that sort but. Uh, I think for, for people, you know, I work for the Kings. I, I, I've been doing the broadcasts uh, for quite a while now. Uh, so, um, but I think you have to be involved with the social media. So I appreciate you asking the question. If uh, anyone wants to follow and, and get aboard and see what's going on, that would be great. Like I said in the intro, it's amazing to me how much life has changed in the past 30 years. You don't really hear much about rookie hazing anymore. And just from what Jim talked about, he didn't go into specifics. It sounds like it was kind of a traumatic thing for him. Just talking about the hazing that he went through as a rookie and that it was time he would never forget. That would never fly nowadays. Could you imagine not saying it's good, not saying it's bad. It's just different. That's all. Anyways, want to thank everyone again for reaching out over this past week to make sure I was okay and asking where the shows are. Once again, please, please, please consider leaving a five-star review or uh, telling a friend or sharing on social media as an episode is released. It really helps the podcast grow and and get more listeners. And as we get more listeners, I think it allows us to do more things. Um, I've got an interview booked for actually, you're going to be hearing this Monday morning and Sunday night. So actually for Monday night, I'm looking forward to that. It's with a former NHL coach. Uh, I think a lot of people will enjoy that interview and we've got some good ones coming up in the next few weeks. So definitely um, subscribe on iTunes, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, because we've got some interviews you're not going to want to miss. Have a great week. Hope you enjoyed the interview and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.